This is, this is the In The Black Podcast. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. What's up, what's up, what is up? Back once again, it is the incredible In The Black Podcast. And in case you weren't aware, this is a podcast dedicated to covering the current events and social issues going on in your black world and covering it all from the perspective of three grown-ass men who tend to like things a little bit adult from time to time. I am your host, Big O, Mr. In the Black himself, but you know that I can never do this alone. I have a fantastic guest tonight, but before we jump into that, you guys know what time it is. It is our Black Light segment. This is our segment to get take a deep dive into the people and conversations that deserve the deep dive. And our guest for this evening is an activist who shines light on glaring blind spots in the movement to empower women. She is the founder and executive director of Old Pros, host of the Oldest Profession podcast, and the writer-performer of the one-woman show, Whore's Eye View. She's written op-eds for the Daily Beast and Vice, just to name a few, and her views are internationally recognized by entities like the World Health Organization, Amnesty International, and UNAIDS. Please help me welcome the insightful, the intelligent, the incredible Miss Caitlin Bailey. Ms. Bailey, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a delight to be here. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time out. Now, I am familiar with you, uh, but for our listeners, for our viewers, if you sure. could, please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I really, I loved uh, your introduction, but um, I am the founder and executive director of Old Pros. We are a nonprofit media organization focused on creating the conditions to change the status of sex work in society. And we believe that art, media, and storytelling are powerful levers for shifting entrenched ideas. Um, I host the Oldest Profession podcast, and I am currently touring uh, my one-woman show, Whore's Eye View, which is a mad dash through 10,000 years of history from a sex worker's perspective. And the bottom line is that I think we've been really wrong about the Oldest Profession for a really long time. Okay. Now, let's jump into the meat and potatoes of it all. Okay. Sure. And through the course of this conversation, we did post in our social medias and in mm -hmm. our group chats uh, that we would be having you on. Mm -hmm. And I have some questions that we'll be going through from some right. of our listeners and viewers as well. So I'll be asking those. But I guess the very first question that I have is, why the hell a advocate for sex workers? You could easily have been an advocate for kittens, homeless kittens, <laughs> sure. and all these other things, but this advocacy yeah. for this, why, why in particular? Yeah, I, um, I felt called to this work, uh, both the sex work itself and also the storytelling and advocacy that's come with it. I came of age during the Bush administration's abstinence-only education program, and I felt like I was being lied to about my body. Um, okay. And, you know, I think uh, everyone can relate to the sort of adolescent impulse to rebel. Um, and so I uh, chose to engage in in sex work. Um, I was, you know, uh, practically 18 years old um, and set up um, an account. This is back when you could still use message boards to schedule and screen your clients. And I wanted to see for myself what all of the fuss was about. This seemed to be you know, the third rail or the most dangerous thing that you could do. Um, and I did it and I thought that it was like 
really boring, mm. actually, um, and that my lived experience just did not align at all with the horror stories that I was being told about what this work was. And the further along that I got in, you know, after um, college, I worked on um, political campaigns for progressive organizations, looking at exploitation in agriculture and domestic labor and in our prison system. And it seemed more and more like we were using prostitution as a symbol of exploitation to distract from the very real violence and exploitation that we seem unable or unwilling to face within our own communities. Um, I came back to sex work. Uh, Sorry. Um, Yeah, I came back to sex work uh, to subsidize my early career in comedy, but I really got activated on this issue in 2018 when Donald Trump signed SESTA-FOSTA into law. Now, that stands Mm. for Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking or Fight Online Sex Trafficking. And like so many federal bills like it, this was something that was sold to the American people as a way of helping vulnerable women and children avoid exploitation. But Mm. I saw the impact that that law had on my community. This is when Backpage was seized. This is when Craigslist erotic services went away. And so all of the places that sex workers had been using to share information and to schedule and screen our clients and to keep ourselves safe disappeared overnight. And it didn't make Mm. anyone safer. It pushed a lot of folks back out onto the street. It pushed a lot of folks back into domestic violence situations. And so I started telling my story as somebody with lived experience in the sex industry, trying to complicate uh, this narrative that we have and try uh, to get our legislators to stop passing bad laws that hurt the people they claim to want to help. Fascinating. Now, I know that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that the focus that you have is predominantly towards women, right? Yes. But have you seen these laws, this theory, this idea of sex work impacting men the same way it impacts women? Yes, it's actually interesting that you you bring that up. So uh, first, I think it's important to say that people of all genders have always participated in sex work, right? Both as, as buyers and as sellers. Um, and you know, But the way that this has been policed and our sort of cultural narrative around prostitution has been very focused on women. And many of the laws throughout history, uh, you know, policing prostitution have really limited women's freedom of movement, freedom of expression. And as a cis woman myself, that tends to be my focus because I do a lot of personal storytelling. But it's interesting because the history of the LGBTQ rights movement um, and a lot of these laws that have been targeted at the queer community, there's a lot of intersection with you know, what happens with the sex work community. Um, and increasingly with these end demand laws, uh, just a few weeks ago, Maine actually became the first US state to um, formally enact this law. Um, mm. They're starting to, to, to target clients and you know, clients of sex workers, predominantly men, um, are starting to be arrested um, because of this conflation with adult consensual prostitution and trafficking. The premise of this law is that anyone purchasing sexual services is no different than a sexual predator. And of course, we as sex workers know that that conflation um, is very dangerous and has a very uh, violent and racist uh, history in this country with the Man Act uh, or the White Slave Law mm-hmm, and um, mm-hmm. you know these caricatures that um, yeah, lead to bad things. Yeah, understood. 
Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick question then. I have one of the questions is from one of our listeners named Trent. He says, what are seldom mentioned downsides of legal acceptance and the safety regulations everyone assumes it would bring? Sure. Well, I think it's important first to, you know, sort of define our terms and get really clear about what we're talking about. There are four uh, legal models for policing prostitution. There's criminalization, which, you know, we're all familiar with. There's mm-hmm. legalization, which is what you see in Nevada or Amsterdam, where the only way to work legally is within these sort of regulated or licensed brothels. Um, then there is end demand, which I just mentioned, which focuses criminal penalties on the buying side. Uh, and then there's decriminalization, which is the removal of criminal penalties for people buying, selling, or facilitating sexual services. Um, and that is the policy that sex workers all over the world have been asking for for decades. But hmm. what we've seen with legalization or regulation, for example, in Nevada, um, which was uh, we did an episode about this. The, the history of the Nevada brothels is, is kind of complicated, but suffice it to say, um, the only way to work legally in Nevada is to become a registered prostitute with the local sheriff's department. This is something that becomes subpoenable about you for the rest of your life. You can imagine how this plays out in child custody yeah, cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to work at one of the few legally licensed brothels. Like none the of Bunny which, Ranch, for example, right? For example, but you can't work legally in Vegas or Reno, which is where the highest demand is. And if you become a registered, licensed sex worker and you work at one of these legally licensed brothels, you are not allowed to leave the premises without permission. You are not, uh, you have hold to work 12 or 24 hold, 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 hold. hour shifts. Re- oh re- yeah. Rewind that. Rewind sure. that. You said, so, mm-hmm. so you're, you're stuck mm-hmm. on the premise. Correct. Because all of these regulations, and this is, this is true of red light districts or licensed brothels. It's all about containment and control because they view sex workers as vectors of disease. It's all about containing Mm. folks within the confines of the brothel. And so that's the real downside, I think, to these like maybe well-intentioned efforts to regulate. Um, But it doesn't result in more worker protections. It doesn't increase the negotiating power of sex workers. It just sort of forces us into this like narrow codified system and turns Mm -hmm. the state uh, effectively into, um, into our pimp for lack of a better word. Okay. I know that there are some people that may be listening to this conversation and they're like, okay, well, what's the big deal now? We have only fans. We have sure. like, how does the, the dynamics have changed since the seventies and eighties when, or even the early to mid nineties, when a lot of these laws mm-hmm. started bubbling up. So what would you say to someone who's like, okay, the game has changed at this point? I think that visibility does not necessarily increase uh, your rights, right? 70,000 people are arrested in the U.S. for this every year, and hundreds of thousands more are kicked out of their apartment or lose their job because they're recognized on, on OnlyFans. Whether you're engaged in criminalized or legal sex work, you are still facing thousands of years of stigma that really do limit people's options mm-hmm. and result in... Um, you know, people lose again, losing their homes, losing their jobs, or even losing their children. 
So this is a very real issue that has devastated people's lives. And so, you know, I think it's really important to increase visibility. Something that I know to be true is that sex workers are already a part of every community. Every so community, yeah. whether your listeners know it or not, they probably already know um, and probably like uh, a sex worker because like we're the coolest. Um, but in order for us uh, to be able to, you know, access the building blocks to move our lives forward, it's important for us to change not just our legal status, but also our social status. Do you think that there's a separation between being an advocate for sex work and being a promoter? of sex work? Because I think some people might hear this conversation and say, you're leading people down this road. You're like pushing sex work on folks as a quote unquote viable option of employment when saying that, hey, it's okay to be a sex worker because you were, I guess the, the stereotype, the stigma is that you were forced into it somehow. But right. you know that there's a difference. Do you believe that there's a difference? I do think that there's a difference, but I also, you know, have no qualms about saying that I think that, you know, sex work has funded more um, entrepreneurs, artists, and students than all of the grants in all of the world combined. Um, I have dedicated You're going to need my... to jump into that. Go, go, go yeah. a little bit deeper into that. I mean, listen, like <laughs> sex workers, <laughs> we... Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, courtesans, um, philanthropists, um, entrepreneurs um, have engaged in this work for, for a long time. I mean, sex workers were some of the first feminists. Um, a story mm. that I like to tell is, um, you know, Veronica Franco was one of the first um, published uh, female authors um, in the sort of Western canon. And she wrote um, and edited and published her work at a time and in a place, this is um, in Venice, uh, the early stages of the Renaissance, before well-born women were allowed to read or access public libraries. Sex workers were some of the first business owners in this country, um, and sex work has funded um, a lot of really cool stuff. So, I mean, I think that saying that I am, you know, suggesting uh, that people engage in sex work um, is giving me a little bit too much power, right? I didn't invent the oldest profession. Uh, it's not a new idea. The new idea is that just because you've engaged in this work does not mean that you've sacrificed an ounce of your dignity or human value. That's the mm. radical idea. And so I think there's a technical difference, right? Promoting prostitution, it's like promoting a show. Uh, I don't have a brothel. I have no one that works for me. I am no longer selling sexual services, but I am absolutely unapologetic about my experience in sex work. And I celebrate the sex workers throughout here, throughout history um, that have uh, been major contributors to the communities that they were a part of. Okay. I want to give you another question from one of our, sure. from one of our listeners. Um, what are some, this is from Carmen. What are some of the more egregious stereotypes about sex work? that make it hard to win the support for the needs, issues facing sex workers? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that the, the two sort of competing narratives that are the, the most troublesome are this vermin or victim narrative, right? Mm. Whether we are considered, you know, vectors of disease and something that needs to be um, exterminated, which is obviously doesn't lead to a great place, or even efforts to help that are grounded in this idea that we need to be rescued uh, from something can be really deeply uh, disempowering. You know, sex workers need rights, uh, not, mm. not rescue. And I, 
one more point that I want to make is that I, you know, people have a lot of ideas about what it means to engage in sex work, but it's a very individual thing. All kinds of people have done this work and it's looked different for everyone, but um, all labor exists on a spectrum of choice, circumstance, and coercion. I did not find the time that I worked at Starbucks to be especially empowering, but I don't think that we should criminalize baristas, for example. My father spent 30 years in the army and served, uh, you know, multiple combat tours in multiple wars and was deeply scarred from by that experience. I could never imagine working in the army or working at a slaughterhouse or doing a lot of jobs, but that doesn't mean that the solution to my, uh, you know, being an inappropriate fit for that gig is the criminalization or elimination of that work. And there are absolutely people who are called to this in the same way that people are called to the theater or called to the ministry. You think so, really, that I people do. are called to be sex workers? I do. I think if you look back at history, sex workers started as deified. If you look at the fertility goddesses of ancient mm-hmm. Mesopotamia or even here in uh, you know, the ancient Aztec uh, empire in Mesoamerica, Tlazolteotl, you know, these uh, you know, priestesses ran uh, many of the ancient temples all over the world. And sacred sex and paying homage to these priestesses that were embodying these unapologetically sexual deities was a part of that. And it's only when we get patriarchy um, and the dangerous ideas around that, that we start to demonize uh, sex workers and that demonization and shape shifts into this disease and victim narrative that we have now. Mm. Okay. Given that, that international perspective, right. Mm -hmm. Or the historical perspective, what would you say are the differences as someone who's molding the conversation around Mm -hmm. sex work? What would you say the differences are between someone who practices sex work in the Western world versus abroad? Well, it's a big world and that's a big question, right? So you, yeah. So, um, sex work looks, um, different everywhere. Uh, Every community is different, right? Urban sex work looks different from rural sex work, um, legal versus criminalized. Uh, but, you know, the first commercial brothels um, started in, in Athens in the ancient world. And they were an answer to um, sailors, right, who were effectively tired of learning all of the sacred rituals that they needed to sort of access uh, the, the priestess prostitutes um, and wanted a more straightforward transaction. But um, and not only does sex work look different, there's no homogenous uh, story about what sex work looks like in the U.S., nor is there you know, a blanket statement that you could make about sex work abroad. I will say that um, desperate people everywhere do desperate things. And the fewer resources or options that anyone has um, leads to violence, exploitation, um, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the problems associated with sex work and criminalization or feeling like you are being hunted uh, by Mm. law enforcement only exasperates those vulnerabilities. Makes perfect sense. Okay, given what you just said now, then what are some of the what are some of the assistance or the, the, the resources that you think that sex workers should have access to as they're trying to promote their work? 
Sure. I think that, I mean, I think that we all deserve healthcare. Um, I think that, you know, when you're talking about like what does effective anti-trafficking policy look like, it means mm. expanding people's access to housing, healthcare, and childcare. Um, victims of trafficking need the same things that victims of domestic violence need. And it's not often um, a SWAT team busting into your living room, but rather uh, a safe place to go. So we need low barrier access to non-judgmental care. Um, and we need the ability to, for example, um, talk about uh, the shared wisdom or work experience that we have in sex work. A lot of those are transferable skills, but you obviously can't put um, a criminalized job uh, on, on, a, your resume. on, a, on right. your resume. Right. Well, I mean, depends right. on the job. Like if you're applying to old pros, you can, but. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, so are you, it sounds as though you're assembling a workshop group study for prostitutes. Does that, does that sound about right? That you guys are able to share information back and forth and, you know, flesh things out. I mean, yeah, I don't want to. No, I, I, but I will say that the, you know, sex workers, um, we've existed in forever, but we've existed as members of a criminalized class for a long time. And the way that sex workers have kept each other safe is by sharing information, which is what's so scary about the sort of like surveillance uh, era that we're living in now. And a lot of like federal laws or efforts at censoring, you know, the internet, a lot of this stuff is being done in the name of increasing safety. But what mm. you're doing is you are further isolating sex workers. You're preventing us from sharing information about bad date lists or how to prevent uh, STIs or mm. how to report abuse without getting arrested yourself okay. or, wow. you know, wow. what, to, what to say on your taxes. There's a lot of information that we need to be able to share with one another that we used to be able to do with a free and open internet. And I believe that we're sort of on the precipice of losing a lot of those tools, ironically, uh, in the name of protecting vulnerable people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I, th I mean, I think you're spot on. I know that in Virginia, at least, one of our neighbors Correct. in Virginia, I know that they've blocked access to Pornhub and other different types of sites, all right. in the efforts of trying to stop, allegedly stop trafficking and be safer and so on and right, so forth. Right, but what's... So. Yeah, but what's so ironic about that is that like Pornhub, for example, does not have a lot of child sexual abuse content on it, um, especially when compared to like Facebook, for example, which is where hmm. a lot of that stuff is or, or the dark web. Um, okay. Right, because there's there's already been a lot of regulation in order to upload a video, you have to upload your ID. It's just not where the exploitation is happening. And I you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but child sexual exploitation uh, predates the internet um, and right. will continue um, regardless of what the, the technology is. This is um, a, a problem that is coming from inside the house. The overwhelming majority of child exploitation is happening from family members, from yeah. trusted members of the yeah. community. And yeah. so it's very um, troubling to me, right, to see erotic content creators and the queer community being demonized in this way when, I mean, uh, I don't know who you follow on Twitter, but I, I follow some accounts that, you know, show me the picture of people who have been arrested for pedophilia and sexual assault. 
And it's a lot of cops and priests um, and youth ministers, actually. But there doesn't seem to be a call uh, for more regulation or safeguards around those communities. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. Um, you are admitted. You are an admitted sex worker, previously a sex worker. Yes. Does your family know? Yes, they do. Uh, I am an aggressively public person. Uh, okay. It'd be weird, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, Caitlin Bailey is my real name. Um, I'm working on my uh, second one-woman show on the topic. I've written a lot of articles for national publications. Um, it would be uh, hard to keep that secret um, from from my family. From the world. So, yeah. So and that was a choice gotta, that I you, made. And it was hard. You've got you've to give me what that conversation was like. Sure. Come up to your sure. family and be like, you know what? Yeah, you know, I do yeah. a little nasty stuff on camera or whatever the case is, right? So, you know, I... Um, I, I think, you know, people have, uh, people come out in, in their own time and, and in different ways. And I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge um, my, the privileged position that I came out, right? I was not um, afraid for my safety. I was not afraid of being, um, you know, exiled from my family. Um, I am an only child, which comes with a lot of power, right? My parents need to like be on board with my choices or like be alone for Christmas. Um, but I first chose to come out to my peer community, um, the comedy community. That's the, the first place that I started talking about my experiences was at wow, shows okay. and, and open mics. Um, and then later when I started uh, writing about this, um, I took a trip home um, and my mom uh, brought me to a therapy appointment because something was wrong. Um, and she said, I can't believe you sold your body. And I said, mm. I didn't, I still have it. And the therapist laughed. Um, and that's how you win therapy. Uh, okay. Now, the conversation um, with my father was a little bit more complicated. Uh, my father joined the army at 17. Um, before he went to Vietnam, he went to the Dominican Republic as a paratrooper. Um, and when I was in kindergarten, he went to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. He's seen a lot of combat and doesn't really have any um, illusions about what his job was. And so he doesn't have a lot of um, moral absolutes, but he was raised in a Catholic family in the mm. 1950s in Kansas and had a lot of strong ideas about what it meant to be a good dad. And that was my big fear because mm. my dad was uh, awesome. He, um, he passed away uh, a, a year ago. Thank so you. Um, actually he, um, he died from um, uh, multiple myeloma, which is a, a cancer caused um, from exposure to, to Agent Orange in Vietnam. So uh, we can talk about what it means to sell your body, but I would like to start that conversation with soldiers um, because I've seen um, what, what the military what took from so? my father. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah and that's, uh, that's a big theme throughout a lot of my artistic work is sort of comparing uh, the different choices uh, and options that my father and I made and had and, and how we navigate that. But, my father um, was very clear that he loved me unconditionally. And although his first reaction um, was not enthusiastic, he did come to see me um, as a freedom fighter. Hmm. Yeah. 
All right, I'm going to give you one more question from one sure. of our listeners. This comes from Addy. Addy says, what do you want people to know about the value sex workers bring to society? Oh, oh that's such a big question. Um, <laughs> I really appreciate that. I, I am biased, um, but I believe that sex workers, um, especially the you know, sacred whores of the ancient temples created the foundations of civilization. I think that we domesticated plants and animals, we invented sacred script, and we gave people a reason to come together. And, uh, you know, brothels, churches, and theaters all share this common ancestor with the, the ancient fertility temples. And so I think it's really difficult to overstate sex workers' contribution. But today, when you find a sex worker in your community, you are often finding somebody who is providing a ton of care to their family and other members of community. You're often finding somebody who is supporting uh, multiple endeavors, right? These are uh, you know, folks not, with not only side hustles, but that are like creating um, opportunities for other folks in their community. And also the job itself this kind of deep listening and intimacy and connection that not all of us are, are privileged enough to have that in our lives. I know, you know, speaking for myself, um, but I know that I am not alone. There are some really treasured moments um, with clients where you feel like you are making a connection and you feel like you're um, breaking through. I don't want to overstate it, not not every sex worker is a, is a healer, not every, you know, we're not all therapists, yeah, um, but there's a lot of good work that happens because of the space and container that sex workers are able to create, not just for their clients, but also for their communities. There has to be a level of freedom there that you get to, I mean, like you said, they're not all therapists, but right. someone that you don't have an immediate tied to yeah that you feel like you can be open and vulnerable with because yeah. of the work that you're doing so yeah. I, I can understand that it's like meeting right, an this... especially warm person on an airplane you know you feel like you can tell them things that you can't tell your you friend. know what you're right about that yeah I, I can i can clearly understand how that would be the case yeah. all right my question and this is the last question for, sure. for tonight i gotta ask this question how can folks i want to phrase this in a way that makes how can folks be allies in their advocacy and efforts for sex workers? I really appreciate that question. And I think it's more delicate than, you know, it, it, uh, than folks would initially um, think. But I think it's important to, you know, proactively educate yourself on this issue. You know, we have a newsletter that goes out every Friday. That's a roundup of sex worker rights related news. But I think one of the best things that you can do to signal to the sex workers that are already in your community is pushing back against these false narratives, right? When somebody conflates sex trafficking with sex work, uh, when somebody denigrates uh, sex workers, you know, being able to have the information to push back in your own social circles, um, it's, uh, that's really important labor that sort of frees it lets the sex workers around you relax a little bit, knowing that they, they have an ally and that they don't have to be the ones that stick their neck out and risk their reputation and all of the material costs of coming out because there is somebody there um, to push back. 
Is there anyone? I, I know I said that was the last question, but I got to ask. That's this. fine. Is, is there anyone? Is there anyone you would steer away from sex work? Like oh. if you met someone and they attributed certain characteristics, you'd be like, no, this is this is not for you. This is this work is absolutely not for everyone in the way that like being a stand-up comedian is not for everyone. Uh, right. You know, right. I think that um, sex work. Oof. I think that anybody who approaches it with the false idea that this is easy money should maybe reconsider um, what they think they know um, mm. about this work. Hmm. Yeah. Even even with the advent of OnlyFans, because it seems like you can just throw your phone up and your do whatever and creator get... is be, is making a podcast easy. Listen, I what? I know it's not, but I've okay. Let me let's let's take a step back. Yeah. <laughs> As a content creator, I know that creating content, mm-hmm. being fresh, doing all those other things, it is not as simple as it, people mm-hmm. might want it to seem, right? Right. But you see, I don't know if it's the society that we live in, but there's folks that they make it seem like this only fans thing is the business. I can't tell you how many articles you may see or Instagram posts you may see where folks will be like, hey, well, I decided to be a OnlyFans person during the pandemic and now I'm making 30 grand a month. They just make it seem like it's just so like right there. So that's why I'm asking, mm-hmm. even with OnlyFans, it just seems like it's more, or the perception is that it's more simple. Sure. I, I assume that you disagree. Absolutely. Um, you know, the sex industry, is a lot like the entertainment industry or like the service industry. Yes, you have your executive chefs and your sommeliers. You also have your busboys, waiter. So uh, the the top of the pyramid does not reflect the industry as a whole. Oh. So yes, there are winners in this economy, but trying to become one of the top 1% earners on OnlyFans is as difficult as trying to get discovered in Hollywood. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. it doesn't happen, but the people that you are reading profiles about, uh, first of all, they're not always transparent uh, about all of the labor that goes into that success. Mm-hmm. And also even with a lot of labor and dedication, you're still looking at the top of the pyramid. Hmm. Interesting. Miss Caitlin Bailey, thank you so much for taking time out to be on the show. Um, thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, we're going to make sure that this is a, a we're going to make sure that this conversation happens again in the near right, future. Yes. I know that for certain. Yes, indeed. So where can folks find you if they'd love to find you? Sure. Um, so as I mentioned, I am the uh, founder and executive director of Old Pros. We have a newsletter that goes out every Friday. It's a roundup of sex worker rights related news. It's also a list of where I'm performing and what podcasts I have coming out. And you can sign up for that at oldprosonline.org. You can also follow us um, across social media at Old Pros Online. And if you want to reach out to me personally, you can find me at Caitlin Bailey. Uh, that's K-A-Y. Y-T-L-I-N. Uh, my parents just sounded it out when I was born. <laughs> I don't know. It's not, it's, not the, it's not the way you're supposed to spell, Caitlin. That's fine. 
Thank you so much once again for being on the show. Thanks really for having appreciate me. It. No problem. And I'm Big O, Mr. In the Black himself. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at MR underscore In the Black. And I want to thank you guys for joining us for another incredible episode of the In the Black podcast. You could have been anywhere else in the world, but you chose to kick it with us and we appreciate it. Make sure you follow us across social media at In the Black PDCST on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. You can check out past episodes of our show at our website, www.intheblackpodcast.com. And if you really want to be part of the family you can come on over to our patreon you will not regret it but as always until next time informed intelligent in the black